Welcome to Midwretched, the home of the most heartless of the heartland. Join us, Tommy and Mick, as we share the best true crime tales the Midwest has to offer. Well, I don't know if you say yay for serial killers, but here we are saying yay for serial killers. I get to learn about a new serial killer, which yes. is always fascinating. Yay for learning. Indeed. By the way, welcome back to Midwretched, friends. <laughs> welcome back. This is why you don't let me do intros, because I just <laughs> go into stuff. It's true. It's true. Uh, so we hope, again, that everyone out there is doing well. Yeah, we're sorry about... Um, you know, any hope that we had for the future, we're recording this after the, uh... <laughs> what do you want to call it? The insurrection, the the prequel to the Hunger Games. I'm trying to think of something clever and I got nothing. Oh, I saw, what was it online? The Q Klux Coup? Oh my God. That's hard to say. That's awesome. <laughs> I'm glad that you made the attempt on that one and not me. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, and then... The banning of Donald Trump from social media, which is super interesting. Ah, fascinating. I've been getting, I mean, you know me, legal nerd. I have been like digging around every piece of research I could around First Amendment stuff and mm -hmm. everything. It's just fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. 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 So what a world we live in. And in short, we are sorry for even remotely implying that 2021 was going to like get off with a chill because it did not. This is why we said back in slowly. Yep. And we recorded that before whatever happened at the Capitol. Yeah. Um, and now we're after. Yeah. And yeah. And now I'm like anxious about what's going to happen between this recording and the actual episode drop. I feel like this is what we get for trying to like plan ahead of time. I know. We should just be procrastinators. Guys, we only record like a week and a half ahead of time. Yeah. So really, like, this is on the rest of the world. This is not on us. So any hoozles, we're going to be bringing you a good old-fashioned serial killer story to cleanse your brain from everything else that's going on in the world. A good old-fashioned palate cleanser. Indeed, kind of. I have been thinking a lot today about, after what we talked about last week, just like how many serial killers must be out there that don't have stories that you hear very often and today's is one mm -hmm. of them so yeah. i'm very excited to tell this story because i've never heard anyone else tell it so i hope i do that's it justice exciting. yeah that's exciting just like our ypsilanti ripper like i've never heard anybody tell that story before yeah yeah i mean it's been out there but this one like i couldn't find i mean to the point that doing the research was really hard because there's just like nothing out there but mm -hmm. made it work with a few cobbled together little sources and my hometown newspapers so we made it work heck yes i appreciate that you know i always love my research before we dive in i'm also going to throw out there there was a spree shooting in chicago today mm -hmm. i've seen different reports from four to seven people were killed yeah from the south side all the way up to evanston so Stay strong, Chicagoans. Yeah, Oof. we love you, Chicagoans. That was Not really so sad to hear about today. Yeah. 
Yeah. Do we have any other updates, shout outs? Um, no, other than shout outs to all of our fans for existing and being great and can you believe that we're like at a point in our lives where we can say shout out to our fans? <laughs> we don't just mean each other. <laughs> like that's cool. Or pets. Yeah. Like that's crazy. Shout out to Murder Beagle. Yeah, right? And Satan Cat. <laughs> Who likes me like 40% of the time. Hmm. No, that's crazy that we can say that, but really do we appreciate you. So we do. Much. You're great. Indeed. So you ready, Freddie? I am so psyched. So I today am taking us to Detroit, to the Motor City, you guys. This is a big deal. I love Detroit. We love Detroit. We love Detroit so much. We met in Detroit. Mm -hmm. I was raised in Detroit, best city in the world. And I mean that unironically, okay? It is an amazing city. It's a wonderful place. It is, however, also a place that a serial killer that we're going to learn about today called home. So I'm going to describe a little bit of the background of just like the layout of Detroit a little bit first. So at this point, we've kind of talked about a lot of big cities and every large city has its own kind of personality and its own deal, right? Yeah. We talked a little bit about Detroit with Benny, but that was very old Detroit. Yeah. And now we're in new Detroit or, you know, um, this is 20 years ago, Detroit, but not that different. Well, actually a lot different. But the way I'm going to lay it out right now is not different from how it was in, you know, 2000, 1999, 2000, where my case takes place. But so most large cities in the U.S., like major cities, are very, very densely populated in not that big of an area of landmass. Detroit is a major city that's the opposite. Yeah. So Detroit is a huge area of land, 142 square miles, but it is not very densely populated at all. It has about 951,000 people, so just shy of a million people in the city proper, but in a huge, huge, huge swath of land. So that does mean that there's a lot of um, empty space. There's a lot of roadway. Mm -hmm. And it's always been like that. Like, that Mm -hmm. is how that city was built. Totally, yeah. It was built to support the auto industry, essentially. So everything necessitates a car. But the crappy part of that is that it it makes it a really easy home for blight, a lack or a deficiency in social services and infrastructure services. Mm -hmm. And it's easier to make an excuse for that when... You could be downtown and drive, you know, 15 miles and still be in the city proper, you know? Yeah. So just like a lot of open area. I think people are often really surprised by that when they see it for the first time that there's just like, like you'll see open fields in a major urban populace. And that is unusual. Mm -hmm. So our case takes us to Detroit And so I want to kind of outline, just like build that picture. So you got Detroit is this huge land area, right? And then the suburbs of Detroit kind of have their own personalities as well. So like the east of Detroit is Canada, and (laughs) which is wonderful. Remember when we we love you, our Canadian listeners? I know. On my nineteenth birthday, because that's what you do when you're from Detroit on your nineteenth birthday. (laughs) You go get drunk in Canada. Yeah, on a Tuesday night. And it was so great because you were also writing a paper about gambling addiction. So when we went to the casino, we were like also there for work and pleasure, which was great. So you got your Canada over there to the east and then kind of the southern and western suburbs, inner ring suburbs, are very much like indistinguishable from 
the city itself. Like you wouldn't necessarily know you weren't in Detroit anymore when you cross those borders. It's still very, very working class, a lot of poverty, not as blighted, but you'll still see some blight there. And then to the north and a little bit to the like northwest is where you get more of the suburbs where there's a stronger delineation where you'll see like the wealth versus the poverty like staring at you right in the street. But when you're in those like southwest and south suburbs, it's very much like kind of one kind of gray area of city. I mean to set that up because we're going to be visiting a suburb, an inner ring suburb, as well as the city of. And it's just important that even though there's two different PDs involved, from the perspective of somebody living there, uh, and this is the suburb that I'm from uh, that we're talking about, like it does not. Yeah, the DH, man. So oh, yeah. it does not feel different at all. Like it's it's indistinguishable, I would say. So uh, yeah, like we're hitting it very close to home right now, like very close to home. So, and that's the other thing about like the population of Detroit. So like Detroit, the city itself has fewer than a million people. The entire metro area, which is how kind of we would f- refer to it, Detroit Metro, is 3.8 million people. And then Dearborn Heights, the suburb that we'll kind of dip into a little bit, is 58,000 people. But it really is just kind of like a blanket of just Detroitiness is kind of your entire landscape here. Mm -hmm. So that's just to set that scene a little bit. And then I'm going to take us to uh, winter of 1999. You ready? I am very ready. Did you notice? I feel like we spent a lot of time in 1999. You know, I think we have. And I think that's a really messed up year. Yeah, we didn't mess in because we were there last turn week. of the century. We were there that last week and the week before. That's weird. And for Elisa Bustamante. That's weird. Turn of the century, folks. People, Y two K, man. It got into all of our heads. It was like the Yurks from the Animorphs, just like in there. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it stayed, and that's why the world is so terrible now. Who knows? So it's matured. <laughs> So it's the evening of December 3rd, 1999, a cold night in Dearborn Heights slash Detroit, Michigan. I am sure that me, as a little eighth grader, was at home watching anime and wishing that I was cool, perhaps. But (laughs) at the same time, uh, 31-year-old mother of four, Monica Johnson, was solicited for prostitution uh, while working a heavily frequented stretch of Michigan Avenue and Livernois in southwest Detroit. The other thing about, you're going to hear a lot of these streets, and it's going to be a lot of the same streets over and over and over again. The other thing, again, to remember about Detroit is, like, remember, just for visual sake, that everything is built to support the auto industry. Mm-hmm. So roads are huge. They're so long. Yeah, they're long and they're wide. So, like, Michigan Avenue is, like, kind of a main artery. Um, My mom will tell you that if she can't take Michigan Avenue to a place, she's probably not going. I can Um, see that. Yeah. It's a main artery. So think of it as, like, a main street kind of. But it's also built like an eight-lane highway. Like, even though it's a surface street, there are, like, four lanes in either direction in some spots. And it's very, very wide. So even though this this intersection is going to be central to this entire story, it's not as though you would see everything at that intersection, even if you were like across the street. Mm-hmm. So it is heavily trafficked. It's a very popular 
space for uh, sex workers can do their thing. But it's not as though, like, we can't blame people for not seeing this happen because it is yeah. just so wide and large and dark. So, yeah, I was going to say, the roads also, again, it's a main road, but they're not especially well lit. No, they're not. This, I do not like this intersection one bit. I don't either mm. at all. Also, do you remember when you and Michelle had to teach me about Michigan lefts? I do. (laughs) (laughs) Poor thing. thing. But now look at you, fully educated. Like, it's amazing. I still prefer my normal people lefts. No, Michigan lefts are best, and they're scientifically proven to be safer. So, come at me. I believe that, but they don't like But I'm right, though. Science. You are. Science. I like it. For science. Okay. I agree with you. I just don't like it. (laughs) Anyway, go ahead. That's fine. You don't have to agree with me. Um, So Monica Johnson, she was a sex worker, uh, again, on that kind of area of Michigan Avenue and Livernois. And then, so she was picked up by a guy who seemed pretty average at first, maybe even almost timid. Um, But not very long into their encounter, Monica was choked, uh, so manually choked, and left for dead. He dumped her out of the side of his vehicle in an alleyway off of Springwell Street and I-94, which is about two miles away from where she was picked up. Uh, looking at like the Google Street view of that, it was basically kind of a grassy knoll between a row of houses and the highway. So she was left for dead there. A passing driver saw her and called the police. And when she was found by the police, she was actually clinging to life enough to tell them some of this story of what happened to her before she did die at Henry Ford Hospital later that night. So that happened on December 3rd. And the thing about the um, community of sex workers in that area is that there it's a strong community, right? Like people know each other, they know who they are, they know, um, you know, if somebody went missing or somebody was was hurt or you know killed this way or somebody like left and stopped kind of working out there, people would know about it, right? So that occurrence really scared people, and uh, the vibe in kind of the community of sex workers in that area it just freaked him out and it's like while they were kind of accustomed in some ways to violence and mistreatment you know at the hands of men rumors spread really quickly that there was a very aggressive john out and about kind of in the area okay so people were on high alert and when monica was killed tensions ran really really high people were very very anxious so then Not too long after that, about a month later on January 2nd, over in Dearborn Heights, which again, its own municipality, so its own PD, but kind of indistinguishable otherwise, on January 2nd, the body of Wendy Jordan, who was a 39-year-old gas station manager who actually lived in Detroit but worked in Royal Oak, which is a suburb to the north, would probably take you about 45 minutes from the DH to get to Royal Oak, if you're lucky. I was going to say, that's a long drive from the DH. And not a convenient one at all. So how she got to the DH, I've got my own theory, and we'll kind of get to that. But so her body was found by a passing motorist who saw her in the Rouge River. This guy that was driving by was driving, and he felt sick while he was driving. So he pulled over to throw up into the river. 
And when he went to go throw up in the river, he saw Wendy's body. So any time a body is discovered, like ideally the police do spend a, a, an amount of time questioning that person. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't happen when I found a body in Detroit, but um, it's supposed <laughs> to happen. a story for another time. It is indeed. And this is Dearborn Heights, uh-huh. so uh, they actually were doing, you know, uh, a fair job. Although you'll be angry at them later. So... So they did question this guy, They right? did actually question this guy, yeah. They brought him in, and he was kind of, like, indignant, kind of like, I'm the good guy here. I'm the one that found her. Why are you questioning me? Which... Which I can get, but also, dude, you found a body. You need to be questioned. Exactly, yeah. And that's kind of how some of the detectives on the case felt about it, too. Like, some were like, don't like the cut of this guy's jib, and other ones were like... Yeah, but this would be annoying, right? Especially, like, he already felt sick, and now he's got to deal with this situation. And they were like, well, what are, you, what are you doing out here, everything? And he said he was driving home from his job at Target. Fun fact, I worked at the same Target as this guy. Not at the same time, but <laughs> still. So it's a small His ghost there. was there. His, his spirit was there. Yeah. Um, so... They questioned him, and they took, uh, he did volunteer some uh, samples, fabric samples from his car, which was a Jeep. So they took, like, samples from the floor, samples from the um, upholstery, that kind of stuff. So at the end of the day, he was kind of indignant but compliant, right? Mm -hmm. So the thing that kind of ended up being tough, so her cause of death was strangulation, but there wasn't really a whole lot more evidence than that. That part of the Rouge River where she was found is very swampy. So, Mm -hmm. like, there are some parts of the river where it's, like, very kind of clear. Very much a river. Very much a river. Um, You wouldn't want to eat anything that comes out of that river, but it very much looks like a river. (laughs) No, don't do it. But where he was driving, it's uh, kind of through a a large park. And so it would have been kind of swampy looking. Yeah, there's parts that are like a river river and parts that are more just like kind of a shallow creek. Yes, and then a lot of like little kind of outlying creeks and stuff like that. So mm. it not a great place for physical evidence to be found. Yeah. There was not a ligature at the scene, even though her death was strangulation. So perhaps manual strangulation or he took the ligature with him. Now, the thing with Wendy was that investigating her background was also really hard for police officers because... She had been a former sex worker and drug user, but her family, especially her sister, insisted that she had been clean for at least two years and was out of the sex trade. Okay. Over the next few weeks. Yeah. I mean, I really, I don't want to besmirch her memory at all. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I think that regulated sex work is fine, but... Why would uh, somebody who worked in Royal Oak be in the DH? Now, that yeah. intersection from Michigan Avenue and Livernois to the DH, five minutes. So, yeah. you know, it does kind of stand to reason a little bit. But, you know, at the same time, like her family is insisting that she was out of that out of that world. So, you know, we don't know. And that's hard because, yeah, yeah like... Why would you be down there? And the North Burbs are so self-contained. Like, being from the south part of the city, you'd have reasons to go north. Like, there's good restaurants. There's, like, yeah. nightlife. It's very trendy. It's very hip. 
been, yeah. Exactly. There's concert venues. You wouldn't necessarily have like a great reason to like go hang out in the DH if you were from Royal Oak. I mean, there are still amazing restaurants. There are, but like, yeah, you wouldn't have a great reason to drive an hour out there. So, you know, I, I don't know. I want to just kind of put it out there. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to put it out there because that question mark is also what made it really hard for police because there was just not, um, there was not consistency in what Wendy's whereabouts would have been before that happened the where she should have been where she was before and where she was going and i but i can also totally see somebody you know not wanting to disclose that to their family Mm, not wanting to you know we might say like disappoint their family because they got kind of dragged back into it or whatever yeah it could have been happening without the sister knowing about it you know yeah uh, definitely easily so uh, the other kind of interesting thing that would happen, though, over the next couple of weeks was that uh, the fibers that they took from the guy who discovered the body's Jeep were consistent with fibers found on Wendy's tights. Okay. And uh, she was wearing gold glitter shoes, and there was gold glitter in the Jeep. Oh, okay. Yes. However... That is not nearly enough evidence to even bring somebody back in for question, let alone make any kind of arrest. So, and Jeeps are weird. I don't know. When I bought my Jeep, it had a whole bunch of green micro glitter in it. And I still (laughs) find green glitter in my Jeep. It was like gently used, you know, but there's... I mean, glitter never leaves. It never leaves. Ever. Yeah. So all I'm saying is like, if you had one kid's daycare art project in your car at any point you're gonna still have glitter in there so honestly let's let's not even talk about art projects let's talk about little girls shirts that are always covered in glitter seriously or gift bags yeah so i'm guessing that like the green glitter that like still lives in my jeep even though i've owned it for two years um probably came from somebody's like saint patrick's day party or something because it's only green glitter but you know, whatever. I, that's all I'm saying. It, it sticks, right? So it's just for those at this point that are mad, like, oh my gosh, there's fiber and glitter. Mm-hmm. It's it's just not enough. It's not enough. It's not. And it's fiber not. evidence is notoriously very, very difficult to, at this point in technology, very difficult to actually use in trial. 50 years ago, it was everything. But nowadays... I was going to say... Yeah, even even still today, like it's increasingly kind of becoming junk science just because like, oh, you know, fibers from this Jeep were on her tights. Well, how much of the same carpeting is used in a million Jeeps? Yeah, exactly. And then, I mean, really, the best they can ever say is that the fiber A is consistent with fiber B. Consistency is not certainty. Right. Mm -hmm. So that is why they could not bring this guy back in you know yeah okay yeah so that was all they had though and so the leads just like quickly quickly dried up they assumed it was kind of a one-off like they weren't like i have a name or are you not giving it to me for a reason he's about to have a name so they assumed it was a one-off like they weren't looking for like a connection to anything else but given the disparity in where she was living versus where she worked versus where she found they thought Mm -hmm. that it was probably random Um, And they were able to clear everyone that the victim was close to. Yeah. So immediate family, friends, stuff like that. They cleared everybody. So 
there were kind of other theories, like maybe she was kidnapped and robbed, like as she was leaving her job at the gas station in Royal Oak, mm-hmm. stuff like that, or she was carjacked, you know, um, kind of things like that were mm-hmm. were kind of what was circulating. However, the girls on the street were linking the crimes early. Yeah, girls on the street are always smarter. They really are. And I don't know if that's because, like, even if Wendy wasn't working down there at the time that she was murdered, I, mm-hmm. I'm guessing she was a known entity, right? Yeah. Like, having only been out of the game for a couple of years. She probably still knew people and... Yeah. So the tensions really kind of started to rise. Simultaneously, uh, this is kind of a gross moment, but um, semen found inside of her rectum was matched to the man who discovered her body. So, that makes Okay, that's a lot more convincing than carpet vipers. Yes, it is. You really can't argue with that. But this is where it's going to be upsetting. So, this guy's name that discovered her body, his name is John Eric Armstrong. Okay. Um, however, here's the problem. There is a policy in Wayne County, which is the county that houses Detroit and most of its inner ring suburbs, that warrants could not be issued based on information from a partial medical examiner's report. So the entirety of the ME's report had to have been completed completed and released before police could issue a warrant. So even though they had the page of the report or the information from the report that said the semen matches John Eric Armstrong, until that full report was released, they could not issue an arrest. Uh. Yep. And I'm willing to bet bet that gets into just like a million bureaucratic issues and delays and backups and bullshit. Yeah, totally. Now, the thing was, though, is like, could police have tried to exert some influence to step on the gas on that a little bit? Mm -hmm. Yes, probably they could. However, because they thought it was a one off, they didn't pursue it for like they didn't try to put any pressure on they just like okay we'll wait you know keep an eye on things and you know. like let us know as soon as this is done exactly yeah because again like we're gonna be very upset about this because we know what we're going with this story mm-hmm. but the, the me is investigating every murder yes every murder is important and every Exam is important. Yeah, exactly. And at that point, too, like the rest of that Emmy's exam could be really, really important be- for other reasons, right? Like if they yeah. could identify precisely what the strength, you know, the tool to strangle her was, that's one thing. Yeah. Um, finding semen alone without other evidence of um, a violent sexual encounter. A defense attorney could argue that they had consensual sex and whatever happened afterward, we, you know, who knows, but... And then he just happened to find her body. Exactly. Just a dink on the way home from Target. Whatevs. But... I find all kinds of things on the way home from Target. I'm telling you. So, just like we want to be mad at these people, and, and we should be mad, but at the same time, like, they're, they were kind of backed against a wall. The problem with that, though, is that the crimes did not slow down they started to kind of speed up. So on April 2nd, 42-year-old Wilhelmina Drain was waiting for a bus at about 11 p.m. on Michigan Avenue, right down by that intersection. Mm-hmm. While she was waiting for the bus, a guy rolled up and offered her a ride instead. It's 11 p.m. She took the ride. 
So she asked him to drive her about two and a half miles to Livernoy and Joy Road, a couple intersections up, mm-hmm. um, very much on a straight line. However, he quickly turned down a back street instead and pulled over saying, oh, I need to get something out of my jacket. Now, instead of reaching for his coat, he reached for her neck instead. Uh, she survived the attack. And she Yay. she told Details Magazine that why she, she survived it was because she was wearing a scarf. Okay. And because she was wearing a scarf, he couldn't get a good grip on her neck. Hell yeah, everybody wears scarves. And Wilhelmina is a badass. Okay. So yeah. uh, the scarf. I mean, her name is Wilhelmina. So. Oh. So he couldn't get a good grip. Uh, so they fought. And um, she was like moments away from blacking out when she managed to tear off his glasses scratch him in the face and pepper spray him before she was able to run from the vehicle fuck yes yep so she's amazing so she was able to get out she called police and provided a description of the vehicle she did not get a good enough look at the perpetrator to be able to provide Mm -hmm. a great description of him but she was able to describe that it was a dark late model suv didn't know the maker model and Everything was dark. You know, it's nighttime. And again, not super well lit. So dark Mm -hmm. in color, right? Interestingly, just to kind of narrow down this radius for people, there's five blocks between where Monica was left for dead and where Wilhelmina was picked up. This is a very tight radius. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy tight. So then that was April 2nd. So on April 7th, again, like very soon after, uh, Wilhelmina's attack. 22-year-old sex worker Devon Marcus was solicited by a large man in a dark late model Jeep. Now, if you do your own research about this case, what you're going to find is that, uh, so Devon Marcus is transgender. A lot of the reporting 20 years ago listed her as a male victim and used some language that I would personally consider to be inflammatory. So just kind of forewarning that, you know, if you do kind of read about this on your own, that's what you're going to find. So Devin climbed into the man's vehicle and the man offered her $40 for a sex. Um, Now, before they actually got started, the man grabbed Devin by the neck growled that he hated prostitutes and tried to choke her out but Devin fought hard yeah I know and just the fact that he like took the time to say that it's getting more intense and more personal and more daring it is it is and it's gonna get even more so Devin fought hard and was also able to escape the vehicle so again good job survivors we're loving you yeah so um Devin went to police immediately as well, described the vehicle as a dark colored Jeep. So again, another dark mm-hmm. SUV. Jeep SUV, easy to kind of confuse in the night. Yes, totally. She was also able to say that the man was wearing a t-shirt that was tan in color and had the name Eric on it. So that is also a good clue for us. Yes. So that was April 7th. On April 10th, everything would take a much, much darker turn. And so, again, the mood on the street is bad. And I don't have stories from everybody that was attacked and survived necessarily. Mm-hmm. I yeah. think that there were probably another like good handful of people that were assaulted. So now we have two confirmed victims and two confirmed survivors. Correct. 
Yep. Okay. Yeah. And like you said, likely possible that there are other people out there that encountered this guy. Yeah. Yeah. And there's at least one more that I'm going to talk about, but um, plenty of people encountered this guy. Um, And, you know, they were talking to each other like, hey, there's an aggressive guy out there. Like, Mm -hmm. maybe watch out for dark colored SUVs, you know, that kind of stuff. So on April 10th, so right kind of south of this area on Michigan and Livernois, there is also, it's Detroit, it's very industrial, this huge, huge, huge um, area of just railroad tracks and industrial kind of outbuildings and stuff like that. So there was a train conductor on a train running along Southern Avenue on April 10th, uh, who from aboard the train saw three female bodies in varying stages of decomposition, very what? close to each other. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Yes. Okay. So that was also his reaction. And so he of course called police, first called the, um, like the railroad police. <laughs> and then they were able to kind of connect <laughs> to Detroit police and kind of get it figured out. But so um, the police came out right away and they, found the three bodies right away. The first one, her name was Robin Brown, a.k.a. Nicole Young. So she was 20 and she was from Chicago. Not much is known about her. Nicole Young was her name in Chicago. And I think she was probably using Robin Brown as an alias in Detroit. And she was killed and left in the rail yard that very morning. So that was a very, very recent attack, according to the police examiners. The second body belonged to Kelly Hood, who was 34, and she was from Detroit, and she had been there for about three weeks. The third body was Rosemary Felt, who was 32 years old and also from Detroit, and she had been there for about four weeks. So at this point, the police know okay, we've got one location here, we've got multiple bodies, and they're all known sex workers. Combining that with the series of attacks and assaults, we have an operational serial killer on our hands. Yeah. So Detroit PD is like, oh my god. I'm so curious. So you were 12 Mm -hmm. when this was happening. Yeah. Did you know there was a serial killer around your neighborhood? No, I had no idea. I had no idea. I was texting my mom about it when I was writing the story, and she was like, oh, that guy? And I was like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And so she remembered, like, this one detail about him that I'll talk about later. Um, But, like, that was kind of it. And my theory about why maybe... Well, I mean, we all know, like, when it's prostitutes and, mm-hmm. you know, people kind of on the fringe, we don't hear as much about it in general. But I also think because the perp is not somebody who's a Detroit area native, I think it would have gotten a lot more traction if he had been an, an area native. I think it's more interesting that he's not, that he's intentionally moving, like, the outer neighborhoods mm-hmm. into the city. I find that fascinating, but we're going to learn more about him. So the whole history here is crazy balls. Like the story I'm telling now feels crazy, but the backdrop is going to be, it's just super bizarre, super bizarre. So no, I didn't know. And, um, 
I, wow. Yeah, I kind of wish I had just because I hate not knowing things, but yeah. So I want to say whatever little I can about these three women. And again, there was not a lot of information out there. Um, Robin Brown, AKA Nicole Young, she had very recently come to Detroit, probably with a boyfriend. Some sources would say a pimp. Others would say a boyfriend. Some accounts would say that she was as young as 16, but the Detroit Free Press listed her as 20. So that's what I'm going with just for simplicity's sake. But we don't know. I couldn't find an obituary. I couldn't find anything on her. If anybody out there knows, please feel free to funnel me that information Um, because it was sad to not be able to find anything. That's always really sad. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Kelly Hood, uh, she was originally from Muskegon, Michigan, which is across the state. um, And she had moved to Detroit with her new husband a few years prior. And her husband worked at the Chrysler plant. She was a mother of three. Um, She had a pretty normal kind of middle class life until she tried drugs with a friend. And that would kind of lead her down a, um, a spiral into addiction and then pursuing sex work to fuel her addiction. But she left behind kids and a husband. And then Rosemary Felt was from the northeastern part of the city, but she frequented that Michigan and Livernois corridor for work. She was known as vivacious and really fun-loving. Her story was very, kind of had another layer of tragedy to it because evidence was strong enough at that, at at her body to tell us that her body had been sexually assaulted after death. Oh, geez. Yeah. Okay, I also want to, at this point, point out that um, we talked about this a little bit last week with the idea of a tight profile. So what these Mm -hmm. victims all have in common is sex work. It basically stops there. Okay. And being women. Races, all over the map. Ages, all over the map. So we've got ages ranging from 20 to in their 50s. We've got every race represented here. Like, there's not a profile. Stature. You know, there's physical size. There's not a profile there. There's not a consistency there. Even like hair color, like we often hear like, oh, he would go after Mm -hmm. brunettes, you know, whatever. There's literally nothing consistent between these victims. Other than they're sex workers. Exactly. So there's no real ability to say like who is in danger, right? Like, yeah you know, blondes should stay home. Like we, there's nothing like that to issue here because the variety is crazy. Other than it sounds like stay away from Michigan and Livernois. Exactly. Which is good advice anyway, but, (laughs) (laughs) but all that to say, we like to think about profiles as being these really like airtight things. Like they'll never deviate from, you know, brunettes between 25 and 30. Like, no, you know, it's just not, For this case, it's very much not the truth. And I think in a lot of Mm -hmm. cases, it's dramatized for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Now, Detroit mobilizes. Detroit PD mobilizes. Dearborn Heights, with a case that they're working on with Wendy, is moving at a snail's pace. And (laughs) at this point, those cases are not connected to that case. Okay. Is that just because of the difference in municipality? Yes. By and large, I think so. Yeah. I mean, you know, DPD is dealing with a lot. 
And a lot of the inner ring suburbs are also dealing with a lot. Like, it's yeah. not like you're in Detroit and then you cross over into a suburb and everything is, like, idyllic and cute. And, and then you're in Oak Park. and you know. No, that's not the way it is. Like, you're in Detroit, you cross over into the DH, you're still in Detroit. So I think they just all have a lot on their hands, honestly. It was also like, okay, they're both strangulation, but Wendy Jordan's body was left in a river. The other ones were left in a railroad yard, so the the water is not a link there. You know, strangulation is not that unusual a modality, you know? So This has such creepy similar vibes to the case we just did last week. I know. I know. And that's like, while you were talking about that, I kind of had... just goosebumps thinking about this case because we'll find later that this guy was probably up to a lot more than what we know. Yeah. Yeah. So now DPD is sprung into action, right? And they're kind of out and about and there was a woman that one of the undercover police officers was kind of hanging out with, like, you know, because she had been a survivor of one of the assaults. And on the night of April 12th, which is two days after the discovery of the three bodies, a dark-colored Jeep was spotted by an undercover police vehicle with this survivor who said, that's the car, that's the car, along Michigan Avenue. All right. So police immediately turned on their lights and just, like, you know, went for it, expecting a chase. But the driver (laughs) was like, do-do-do-do-do, bloop-bloop-bloop, I'll pull over. And who should it be but John Eric Armstrong? Oh, hey. Yep. Uh, I'm sure you didn't see that coming at all, right? Did not. I am floored. Yes. Nobody expected this. I know. So uh, when he was apprehended, he confessed to everything in minute detail. So um, there's not any kind of investigative mystery going on here. We don't have to, like, pin him to anything. He confesses. So at this point, I want to talk about his backstory a little bit because his backstory is crazy. All right, let's do this. When I was talking to my mom about it and I was like, you know, do you remember this case? She said, oh, the sailor. This guy was a Navy man. <laughs> yeah. So that was the detail that like stuck out in her mind. Love you, Mama Tommy. She listens to every episode, so she loves us back. Hi, you can't see me waving, but I am for some reason. I know. Well, you should be. She knows. She knows. So John Eric Armstrong actually went by Eric, his middle name, because he was named after his abusive father, John, and did not want to be associated with his name at all. Okay. So I'm going to call him Eric just for simplicity's sake. He was born in 1973, meaning that he was only in his early to mid-20s during this crime spree. Yeah. Which is also kind of unusual. So he was born in New Bern, North Carolina, which is kind of a hard scrabble, like small town in North Carolina. Um, and his father was abusive. And his mother, like they were still in touch in his adulthood. It sounded like she just kind of tried her best in a really, really difficult circumstance, basically. But she was stunned later to find out what he had done. Mm-hmm. So his early childhood was marked by um, an incredible degree of tragedy. Which makes me wonder if that was kind of the impetus for everything. Or at least if professionals had seen some of the signs he was exhibiting as a child, 
you kind of mm-hmm. wonder if stuff wouldn't have gone down the way that it did. So I wonder that with literally every perpetrator. I know. Early childhood education is very, very important. Yes. Very Guys. Important. Seriously. Get your kids in services. Get them in interventions. Yes. Advocate. 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 Please. Please. So when Eric was five, uh, he had a two-month-old baby brother named Mikey who died of sudden infant death syndrome. Yeah. And when Mikey died, Eric was incredibly traumatized by the loss. And at the age of five, he made his first suicide attempt. Oh my gosh, at five? At five years old, he rode his bicycle into oncoming traffic. (gasps) Yes. When he was rescued and asked what he was doing or why he was out there, I'm sure the adults were hoping to hear that it was, I lost control or it was an accident. He said, I want to be with Mikey. So from a very early age, that trauma has just, I think, changed him entirely. Guys, get your kids in therapy, please. Seriously, even if it's nothing that heavy, which I hope it's not. The tragedy of his childhood continued. His father was sexually and physically abusive towards Eric until he left the family, which probably Eric was about nine, like prepubescent age. His mom really tried to like strain together a normal life. And Eric was known to basically be like Joe average in his school years, like Mm -hmm. average student pretty quiet unexceptional his hobbies were baseball and fishing like average teenage boy in north carolina kind of stuff Mm -hmm. nothing particularly remarkable but there are i think a few kind of key events that tell us that there was something else going on underneath that little average joe exterior Mm -hmm. and that was related very much to his relationships with women yeah so uh, when he was 15 He reported that a girlfriend or a girl that he went to school with was pressuring him to have sex, and he really, really, really did not want to. And something about that pressure just really freaked him out, and um, to the point where he reportedly locked himself in a bathroom for hours on end. Like, he had a breakdown and locked himself in a bathroom for hours and hours and hours because of the pressure that she was putting on him. Oh, wow. Yeah, so just a very strange reaction, right? So that happened. He was about 15 when that happened. In his later high school years, he was actually in a very serious relationship, at least what he would say was a serious relationship with a girl named Kelly, who he considered his high school sweetheart. Mm -hmm. Eric thought that they were forever material, that they were going to get married after high school. Like, this this was it for him. So when Kelly broke up with him, Eric was just devastated. And according to Eric, Kelly broke up with him to be with a guy that was just lavishing her with gifts, gift after gift after gift. And he came to associate that with prostitution, that he, you know, that she was persuaded to be with somebody else because of material goods. I'm not going to say any of this is not true because I wasn't there. Right. This sounds like some straight up incel bullshit. It kind of does. Yeah, it kind of does. And it sounds very much like an excuse. Like, that's a big, big leap to make. Like, yeah, it sounds like insult bullshit to me, too. And this part, too, like, he would call Kelly's new boyfriend, quote, unquote, the enemy. So, Uh yeah, he was taking that down a very scary road. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So uh, being an unexceptional student, when he graduated high school, he wasn't <laughs> college bound, but he was like fairly smart and had some skills. So he decided to join the Navy and he was stationed on an aircraft call a carrier called the USS Nimitz. 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 And this is where he alleges that his crime spree actually began. Okay. Yes. So his hate for prostitution was fueled, he would say, during this time because the Navy required seminars for how to, like, ward off sex workers in these different ports of call. And that he would really? do that. Yes. And so that, like, solidified his hate for sex workers. I have at least one friend in the Navy who I'm going to call now. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, we need a fact check on that one. Because <laughs> that seems kind of absurd. Um, so Navy in the mid-90s, let us know. So um, he did, like, okay in the Navy. He His shipmates called him Opie. What? Opie. Yeah. Opie? Opie. Like from the Andy Griffith show. Because he was a redhead. Oh. Yeah. And that, he was a redhead. Yeah, he was a redhead. And that nickname kind of stuck. By the time he was apprehended, he was balding or like shaved head. So you probably couldn't really tell. But back in the day, he was a ginger. You can't. <laughs> you can always tell. <laughs> Sorry, gingers. We love you. He did okay, I would say. Like he won some medals and ribbons and things like that. But his roommate said that he was really weird. And that he would throw temper tantrums when he was angry. So, like, he would respond to things, like, just way overreact to kind of pretty normal daily frustrations. Roommate would say that Opie would complain constantly of these, like, debilitating headaches. So, and that was something that Eric would kind of talk about later as well. Like, I have these just horrible headaches. I get these horrible headaches. So, the ship sailed all over the world, obviously. And Eric Armstrong later confessed that while he was aboard the USS Nimitz, that he murdered 11 sex workers during that time, between 93 and 98. Wow. So, yes. This is crazy. And so they all would have been overseas. Almost all of them. So three were in Seattle, two were in Hawaii, two were in Hong Kong. And then one in North Carolina, one in Virginia, one in Thailand, and one in Singapore. Oh, wow. Okay. Yes. Um, so the FBI was very, very interested in this. They were not able to link him definitively to any unsolved murders in those places. However, he has been tentatively linked to strangulations in Israel, Japan, and South Korea at that time. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. How the fuck are there's not more information about this guy? I know. I told you there was that one quote I read that said he was the smartest serial killer you've never heard of. Okay, but tell me why he would what makes him so smart because I'm not I'm not seeing super smarts here. Well, he did he was able to get away with it for this long essentially. Like if if this is true that he has all these victims everywhere, he has committed a huge amount of crimes like virtually unseen. I mean, Anthony Sowell had 11 murders in plain sight that doesn't yeah. make him smart no it doesn't but john eric armstrong also has white privilege with anthony sowell does not yeah so i'm sure that plays a little bit in that too is there any cleverness other than the fact that he didn't get caught 
because for one thing, the same thing with Samuel Little. So many victims. Yeah. I don't know if he was especially smart other than he targeted people that we know in American culture aren't going to be investigated. Yeah, no, I think that, I think honestly that it's what fueled that quote to me was a lot of his other credentials, like the Navy situation, the fact that it was international, like you're getting with international crimes, things like that. Yeah. I think white privilege is probably at play there as well. So I think it's a lot of those types of factors. Like he did not have a particularly unique MO, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, Or anything like that. Actually, like he was pretty brazen. Part of me is very shocked that he didn't get found out earlier because his jeep also had like a unique vanity plate i don't remember what it said um i can find out yeah i was just i was expecting like these like intricate plans and whatnot and i'm just hearing like yeah no he just preyed on sex workers in dark alleys yeah pretty much pretty much yeah his license plate on his jeep said baby doll that's gross that's so fucking gross yeah so we also had a very distinctive vehicle like so i it's less intelligence and more brazenness and just sheer dumb luck well yeah even uh in chicago arthur hillier yeah that's just brazenness yeah and i think maybe sometimes we like interchange those things right like the fact that somebody could get away with being that brazen and have that kind of body count behind them do we like transpose that with intelligence in a way I mean, not to bring back the capital storming, but that wasn't intelligence. That was just brazenness. Right. But they did it. You know what I mean? Like, uh-huh. so maybe that it's a semantic problem at the end of the day. Mm, and I we and we equate success with intelligence or success with specialness in some way or exceptionality. I guess. Mm. It's important, though, to get back to this guy. Physical evidence hasn't been able to link him definitively to those cases, Mm -hmm. but there's fairly strong circumstantial evidence, especially about this one, this one I'm about to talk about. So in March of 1998, Lynette Hillig was found dead in Norfolk, Virginia. The USS Nimitz was in Norfolk at the time. Mm -hmm. Now, the MO in her case was a little bit different because she had also been run over with a car after her sexual assault. That's overkill. But she was also a known prostitute with a record. So Mm -hmm. my suspicion, it's just a suspicion, is that the autopsy may not have been the most thorough thing in the world. Okay. The other thing that makes this difficult to solve definitively is that we don't have names for the other potential victims, and neither did Armstrong. So couldn't furnish names. There's just not that much you can do to link at that point. You know what I mean? So, but I believe him, honestly. Like, he clearly has the capacity. I wonder what his first crime was. I'm guessing it was probably something close to home. It so often is. Um, Yeah. And there was a case in North Carolina that we know of. So I think that was probably his first one, be my guess. But... You know, we just don't, we can't say definitively. Yeah. Do we know anything about his personal life? I was just about to talk about his personal life. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. 
That's so cute. Take it away. <laughs> Thank you. So he was married in 1998. So the same year that he killed Lynette Hillig, he got married to a fellow naval officer named Kelly Rudnowski. And she was from Dearborn, Michigan, which is how he ended up in Dearborn Heights. Okay. Shortly after their marriage, they mutually decided not to re-enlist in the Navy and instead okay. moved to the Dearborn Heights area in 1999 um, to be closer to her family. What's interesting to me about that is that he started killing in the DH basically right away upon moving there. Yeah, it sounds like it. Yes, which to me does not communicate that that was his first rodeo at all. Yeah, there was no buildup. There was no suspense. I think he slipped right into a pattern that he felt comfortable about, to be yeah. honest. That's my my theory, um, which is why I believe him. So in 99, they had their first child. His name was Austin. So he had like kind of a normal daily life, you know, a wife yeah. and a baby. When he was arrested, his wife was actually pregnant with their second child. So mm-hmm. I feel really awful for her. And she had no idea. It is interesting, though, that when he got out of the Navy, he was working like a kind of a cobbled together, like set of jobs, basically to kind of make ends meet. So he wasn't working like a full time, consistent nine to five. He worked security at the same target that I worked at. Shut up. That's so fucked up. Isn't that weird? And then uh, he was a security guard at like an office building in the North Burbs as well. So he had like a couple of jobs he was kind of cobbling together. He was also taking classes at school, Schoolcraft College, which is a community college, kind of right down the street from where he was living. But kind of while he was like establishing that life, he was also very much like doing the stuff by day, killing by night. I also mm-hmm. think like because he was working security in the north burbs i kind of wonder if he was using that southfield freeway artery to kind mm-hmm. of get himself to michigan and Livernois to then do that stuff before he went home i also there was it's also just an errand before he heads home pretty much i That's mean so fucked up isn't that crazy but i also think it's interesting that whatever happened with wendy jordan mm-hmm. whatever happened she was found like pretty close to his home So I kind of wonder, did he pick her up? And that's going with the theory that she was down there, which, again, it's just a theory, and it's not an insult at all. But I wonder if she was down there, he picked her up, they did their thing in his car, he killed her and transported her. And then I wonder if because the DH police kind of questioned him right away and everything, if he thought, I better stick with Detroit. Yeah, I'm just, I kind of wonder. I also, mm-hmm. I wonder that because he, uh, in the few months before the Wendy Jordan murder, he called police to his job in the North Burbs for a break-in that ended up being a false report. So he just, like, called the police for a false report. Interesting. Yeah. I kind of wonder if he was, like, litmus testing the police in the area. Like the police responses? Yeah. Yeah. So he was the one that found, like, that called the police to find her body, though. Yes. Yeah. That's so strange. What? I know. What's the motivation there? It's so brazen and so strange. I mean, there's lots of reasons to do that, right? Like, we've heard people do that out of guilt. Uh-huh. We've heard them do it out of ego. Uh-huh. Um, and we've heard them do it out of experimentation. Yeah. I kind of yeah. think he was experimenting. 
that's the only reason that makes sense to me. Yeah. Because it doesn't sound like this guy has any guilt, any remorse. Not particularly. I mean, he did cry during questioning. He cried in court, that sort of thing. But he's not guilty enough to stop doing it. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And... To say it's like ego. If it was ego, I would expect that to ramp up mm-hmm. with the following every, murders. Like a phone call every time or uh-huh. you're writing your little letters and things like that. Yeah. And it didn't. It stopped. So it feels like experimentation. The only other thing I can think of is did somebody see him? Like did somebody else pull their car over and be like, hey, buddy, you okay? And then they saw it and he's like, oh, well, we need to call the police. There's mm. his body here. Yeah. But you would think that that person would have been able to come forward, you know? Yeah, like pretty uh, yeah. Quickly. So I wonder if he was kind of experimenting with those police departments. And I do think, like, when you're in that area, it's really easy to forget that it's not going to be all one jurisdiction or all one, yeah. like, reporting agency. Because there really is just, like, not that much delineation between those places from, like, a day-to-day living mm-hmm. point of view. Like, when I was living there, I could, on any given day be you know at at home in Dearborn Heights go to Allen Park to go shopping be in Detroit for class be in Dearborn to go to the mall go to Taylor to go to the mall go to Southfield to go to the mall (laughs) wait a minute (laughs) you know what I mean so you could very easily I think people forget that it's not going to be like one like master police department policing the whole area because everything just Mm -hmm. is so smooshed together I think he was experimenting and I think he was testing the the PDs and that's the only reason I can think for making a false break-in report is just testing like okay I I work up here up here in the north burbs I wonder what I could get away with up here I'm gonna call and see how fast the police come out for this type of report and of course it's the north burbs so they came out exact exact yeah exactly I was gonna say and for what it's worth the north burbs are gonna have a lot more resources and a lot more you know, funding to get police there faster. Yeah, exactly. So my guess is that, like, okay, Wendy Jordan was close to home in the DH, but then the police were, like, fairly on top of stuff and questioned him and everything. Mm-hmm. And by sticking within the radius of where he was picking everybody up at Michigan and Livernois in Detroit, yeah, I mean, he was able to stay very low profile despite having a distinctive vehicle He's also very large. So even though he was in the cars, he would have like fairly distinctive. He was like 6'4", 300 pounds, big guy. His freaking license plate said baby doll. Like he's That's distinctive. so gross. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I think like when you're distinctive, where do you go? Somewhere you'll blend in, you know? Yeah. I mean, there are so many questions, so many questions. But I think the fact that he got to work so quickly after moving to the DH just tells me that he was already comfortable doing what he was doing. And I don't think that he was experimenting with the murders. I think he had his MO pretty wrapped up tight. Um, I think he was experimenting with the PDs. But then it feels like posing the bodies on the train tracks feels like an escalation again. Yeah, and they were they were kind of like from a visual standpoint, they were kind of stair-stepped out a little bit. Mm-hmm. Body one, body two, body three. I know that the third body took a little bit more of a walk to find, but all like visible from the train, like that yeah. doctor had seen and everything. And 
the necrophilia angle, we don't know if he necessarily came back or if that happened the night of her death. But that rail yard would not be somewhere that you would go by foot, like for a walk Mm -hmm. or anything. So, you know, an easy place to hide things. Yeah. But yeah, it does feel like an escalation. I think that if he hadn't have met such tough cookies as Wilhelmina and Devin, that there probably would be, you know, more bodies in Detroit as a result of his work. But, um, so how did he finally get caught? Like, how did he finally get brought in? Well, so they, they spotted him right when they were undercover and the one survivor was like, Oh, there's the car. There's the car. And again, he pulled over, came out and confessed. Oh, that's right. Okay. Sorry, we went on so many loops. I know. I know. I didn't know that we would loop so far on this one. I was like, oh, this is going to be like so straightforward. But um, it never is with us. It never is. But I think it's interesting that there's just this dearth of information. So he was arrested on the 12th of April. Okay. And he was arrested for the murder of Wendy Jordan. Again, the DNA match was there. He was also charged with first degree murder for... Kelly Jean Hood, Robin Brown, Rosemary Felton, Monica Johnson. He was found guilty of all of those charges. And he is serving a life sentence in the Michigan corrections system, which is not a friendly place. So I'm sure he's not having a very good time. No, no. Everything happened fast. He confessed to pretty much everything. He cried a lot in court. He cried during questioning. But he would kind of skirt in and out of stories a bit. So He cried because he got caught. Exactly. But I do think that maybe part of why he hasn't gotten more interest in media in general is just that the trial and the investigation process was not particularly sensational. Okay. They saw his car. They pulled him over. He plopped his butt out and said, it's me. I did it. You know, it doesn't have like the sex appeal of, a, you know, a manhunt so much mm-hmm. so yes so that is the story of john eric armstrong your detroit serial killer is he still alive he is yeah he's not he was born in 73 so he's gonna be 50 in a couple of years he's so young i know he was really young when he was getting after this stuff again like that trips me out too and it makes me think if we were able to dig a little bit more into like i think his childhood stuff is really interesting i would be interested to know so there was a killing in the New Bern area at the time that he lived there that was not solved kind of wonder North Carolina where he was from oh okay Okay. Um, so I kind of wonder if there was a connection there I just want to know what his first was yeah when did he start yeah and that can tell you a lot about somebody you know it's the trying everything out it's sloppy but I think there's often like a lot of emotional or psychological stuff in the first ones like before they kind of refine Mm -hmm. their practices you know so I think a lot of the times like what you see is a lot of the evidence of the pathology comes out like particularly strongly in that first one yeah because you see the rage you see the Mm. everything exactly you can see like who's the real target you know yeah and the Mm -hmm. fact that you did say to more than one person I hate prostitutes or something to that effect that feels like a cop-out motivation to me, but... It really does. Yeah. So there has to be more to it than just, like, I was spurned by a high school girlfriend. 
That's exactly what I was thinking. I was like, I don't buy that. But I could also see like the domino effect of losing his little brother, having <laughs> suicidal ideation and attempts at that young of an age. Mm-hmm. And then to go through the sexual trauma with his father, you know, as yeah. an abuser. And then to experience rejection. First, like, pressure to have sex and then rejection from somebody. Like, he has not had any, like, remotely healthy or normal relationship in his entire formative years. Okay. Let me say, though, the pressure to have sex and then the rejection. It's confusing. No, well, no, like it, it's common. Yeah. It's everybody's adolescent years. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Like to me, that's like, that's pathologizing something that we all experience. Yeah, 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 yeah. It is. So like my question is like, what about him made mm-hmm. those experiences not normal? So deep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Why do they cut so deep when we all have some tale of, sexual pressure in high school and we all have some tale of rejection in high school right Mm -hmm. like we all have those stories so why why eric armstrong why did it cut you so deep eric armstrong if you're listening yeah write us a letter and explain yourself why are you like this please we are at men ratchet on all social media we know you get your like 10 minutes a day in jail to get on your computer and this is going to be a short episode so it should only take you like a week or so so hit us up Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and you're welcome for us telling your terrible story. <laughs> so, yeah, that's my story this week. I'm mad. I know. It's aggravating. I'm mad when I don't get answers. I know. I'm sorry. I, I do tend to, like, choose stories for you that often don't have, they don't have all the answers that you seek. No, I just, I want to know why. Yeah. I mean, and I don't buy... I don't buy the reasoning given thus far, even though I know it's all of the reasoning that you could find in all of your research. Yes. There's something hiding in that little boy's brain. There's something in there. Maybe we should just write him a letter. But, like, here's my question. Like, who has ever had what to you has felt like a satisfactory why? I'm getting to a satisfactory why on Ed Gein. Really? I'm getting there. Mm, Okay. Who else has a satisfactory why? You know what? Not because I like his story, but because it's such a straightforward story and I can get shit for this Charles Manson. Mm. I can see right through him and that's why he's not interesting to me. Yeah, that's fair. Those two are the first ones that come to mind. Yeah. And so, like, I asked that question because it's like I'm having this conversation a lot with my students because we just keep coming back to murder because I'm their teacher. (laughs) (laughs) I wish you were my high school. I know. But, you know, we always talk a lot about the why, the why, the why, the why, the why. And it really is. I think the more interesting question is not the why, but at what point is the why good enough for the listener? Or at what point is the why, like, adequate to us? I need some eucalyptus oil to calm me down now. But, like, when is the why good enough for us? When is it, like, a satisfying story? You know? Yeah. Will we ever have a good enough why? I feel like when I can connect the behaviors to something that happened to them, they're trying to remaster something that happened to him. They're trying to recover some of the trauma. Like, honestly, Gertrude Banjewski, 
Yes. Her behavior, it is deplorable, but I feel like I got an answer to the why. Yes. When I asked that question, the answer in my head was Gertrude Banaszewski. Like, she makes a degree of sense. Like, obviously, what she did is deplorable, but it, you can see why she did it, you know? Yeah. I get a why out of that. Yeah. I just, like, I've been thinking about that question a lot because I could feel this conversation when I was writing this. <laughs> you know what's going to happen. I did. And I'm like, I'm frustrated, too. But I guess I'm more like, I guess I feel kind of resigned to never having a why that's good enough. Yeah. You know? Well, I have another case for you next week that I have no whys for. Ooh, give us, that was a seamless segue. You are so good at the seamless segues, dude. Thank you. Yeah, I'm not. I'm just like, ha ha, I'm going to do this thing now. It's because your mind stays present and my mind is never less than three steps ahead of where I am supposed to be. Yeah, I am very present. Any who's old. So what's happening next week? We are going to talk about the case of Andrew Six and his just mad chaos energy. Oh, finally, Andrew Six. I still don't know anything about this guy. The name just sticks out in my head and we've been talking about it for months. I mean, it's a good name. Yeah. But he is pure chaos energy. Interesting. And I, there are no whys from what I can tell. Okay. Like, he gave a lot of excuses, but no whys. So we're headed back to Iowa. Don't We didn't forget about you, Iowa. No, we'll never forget you. We'll never forget you. You cute little square out there. You don't give us any answers. No, <laughs> answer us, Iowa. <laughs> answer it for yourself, Iowa. <laughs> so we're going to Iowa. We're going to Iowa for some chaos. Um, we'll make some stops in Texas, actually. Ah, um, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So ah. That, that'll be next week. So that's a good come reason back. to come back to us, people. Yeah. What else should we say in closing? I have a name for the Chicago Spree Shooter. They have him in custody right now. Yeah, Jason Nightingale. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to, I'm going to probably come back with some more info on that one because he sounds like a trip. Yeah, we need to cover that at some point. All right, people. So I guess all that we have to really ask is that people keep up with us, listen to us consistently. We like that. Um, yeah. <laughs> keep, we appreciate you keeping coming back. Visit us on the socials. Come by, comment, say nice things. We love all your feedback. Totes. Leave reviews. Yes. Man, I was really awkward at this ending. That's okay. We just changed places. We did. Aw. That's so cute. I'm going to shut up now. I'm just going to say be nice. Eat cheese. And we, and we love, love you. you. Filled with Italian beef and ready to go. Dirty. No, I didn't even mean it that way. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I mean, whatever works for you. <laughs>